interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. I am uh, very pleased to be with you. I, I have sort of a voice and hope it uh, survives the day. It's, it's a uh, particular pleasure to meet graduates and faculty at uh, institutions like Cornell, uh, specified Christian institutions like Wheaton College in its own way, the University of Notre Dame, have an important part to play in Christian life in contemporary American culture. But I think myself that... Uh, Christian believers who are in mixed environments like Cornell have in some ways a more important task as people at the pit face of mining for Christ. Um, Today I'd like to uh, talk about, uh, to a mostly evangelical audience, a way of moving from existential and intellectual and theological commitment to Jesus Christ to the exploration of whatever it is you do as an academic for Christ. Um, Evangelical Christianity features an intense focus upon the saving work of Christ and and the evangelical contribution to world Christianity and then to the world more generally has been this concentration upon the need of sinners for Christ and the work of redemption that that Christ brings. For, I would say, uh, uh, contingent reasons, for reasons that are not built into anything universal. However, for the last 100 or 125, 150 years, Christian believers who have made much of the saving work of Christ in their own lives have felt uh, somehow alienated, often felt alienated, often felt conflicted about the focus of that belief in Christ moving out into the cultural and intellectual and academic aspects of of modern existence. I don't think that's a necessary condition. In fact, I think it's actually an abnormal condition. And today I'd like to uh, talk about how how maybe uh, steps can be taken to move uh, the other direction. I would would say that the the material I'm giving today has been thought about for a long time, and yet there's still quite a few elements that I'm not sure of. I had immense help, I think three different times at Wheaton College, to take part in a faculty um, seminar throughout the entire academic year where people from different academic disciplines came together to consider Christ and the implications of belief in Christ for academic life. So if there's good things here, they probably came from my Wheaton colleagues. If there's suspect things here, it's probably my fault. What it it, uh, seems to me important to uh, begin with is the matter of perspective, a place to stand from which to see the world that you engage in. And I know at Cornell, with the history that combines the liberal arts and, and the practical arts, it's just an immense vista of human exploration that is found in this uh, one I- institution. But for Christian people, having a place to stand that's stable and thick and resourceful is a shared gift of life in Christ. 
from my own perspective, and I realize this is a historian's perspective, the great common inheritance of all Christian people are the Christian creeds. You've got a sheet in your packet, I think, today with the main creeds. We're going to get to those toward the second part of the, the talk, and I'm also trying to be succinct, which is hard for us academics, so as you have a chance to respond. But the, the Christian creeds are, are a, um, a brief distillation of centuries of hard work. And they're particularly important, I think, for uh, Christian people who want to be believers in their intellectual life in the 21st century Western culture because the creeds represent the process of translation. They are a summary of what the Christian faith was proposed to be in a Roman Hellenistic world by people whose instincts were trained in the Semitic world of the Old and New Testaments. So, so the creeds represent in some ways not just a summary of the Christian faith, but a translation into the active intellectual and political cultures of the first centuries of, of the Christian era. The, creed, the creeds offer uh, stable theology, and I want to point out briefly at least how the theology of the creeds provides a basis for intellectual life, but they do this because they are distillations. They summarize uh, a great deal of biblical material in what they say, and that summary of important strands of biblical revelation is why the creeds are so important. An evangelical Protestant has to say that. The creeds have validity because they rest themselves upon the breadth of scriptural revelation. So what I'm going to do first is to take just one strand of the many possible strands of biblical revelation, just one strand of biblical revelation, and then to try to develop that briefly, and then to show how in the great Christian creeds, that strand, as well as many other strands of biblical revelation, are actually summarized for the good of the church in many different ways, but also for the good of the church as an academic, in its academic task. So the theme I'd like to uh, present to, to you this day in, in very brief form in the scriptures is the theme of the glory of God. The glory of God is, is a major uh, emphasis in both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament. In, in, in the Old Testament, God's glory was described as an ineffable splendor that displayed his holiness, but also his separation from humankind. So in the story of the Israelites after the Exodus, the glory of God was an overwhelming and frightening presence. Here's Exodus chapter 24. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountains. And here's uh, Moses in Exodus chapter 4. At a time of worship, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the Lord had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So God's glory was intended to communicate the awesomeness of God. And that awesomeness was described once during the reign of King Solomon. This is from 1 Kings chapter 8. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled his temple. The glory of God was a fear-inspiring presence. And that fear-inspiring presence 
uh, drifts over into the New Testament. Think about these common words that you know so well. An angel of the Lord, Luke chapter 2. An angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And you know the next phrase. And they were terrified. They were sore afraid. That's exactly how I learned it too. They were really afraid when the glory of the Lord was displayed. You have, we have the clearest exp- explanation for why holy dread attended the presence of God's glory during the life of Moses when he asked for an unusual gift. So here is Exodus chapter 33. Then Moses said to the Lord, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But the Lord said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. So awesome as the Lord's glory appeared to ancient Israel, Nonetheless, Israel's prophets foresaw a day when the divine glory would in fact be manifest for all to see. So here's Ezekiel chapter 39, when in the uh, prophecy about uh, apocalyptic judgment, the Lord says, I will display my glory among the nations and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay upon them. So the manifestation of the glory of the Lord in one strand of Old Testament revelation is to punish and, and to uh, beat down the nations of the earth. But there's also the passage that's found in Isaiah and almost, a, almost a, exactly the same words in Habakkuk with another connotation about what it means for the glory of the Lord to be displayed. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. These prophetic words underscored the splendor of the divine presence and they did not fundamentally alter the unapproachable transcendence of God, but they did communicate that there would be a manifestation of this glory. I'm reluctant to go into this kind of technical stuff because it's over my, as someone has recently said, my pay grade, but uh, I'm going to do it anyways. The Hebrew term for glory, kabod, which was used in all of these passages I've mentioned, expresses a metaphorical sense of weight or splendor, honor. The Greek transliteration, a translation that's used in the Septuagint in the New Testament, doxa, means brightness or splendor or radiance, majesty, magnificence. It also means fame, renown, and honor. For the New Testament writers who proclaimed the mystery revealed in Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news, it was of paramount importance that this word be used to describe the presence of Christ. So sometimes, to be sure, the New Testament usage reflects the Old Testament sense of glory as a splendor of God before which all people must simply withdraw. We have that usage in the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. This is from Luke chapter 9. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, They saw his glory and the two men, Moses and Elijah, standing with him. The Synoptic Gospels also record Jesus speaking about the end of the the world in terms of glory as a fearsome presence. At that time, Luke 21, 
At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But the revolutionary use of the term glory in the New Testament came not in reference to the end of time, but its application to the present appearing of Jesus Christ. And you you know this, these passages. What no one in ancient Israel could look upon and live was now being shown to all people as the gift of life itself. So, Luke Luke chapter 2, the aged Simeon sees the young infant Jesus and says, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to the people of Israel. Then, in in different parts of the, the New Testament, the same theme appears that in Christ, the glory of God is manifest for all to see. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. The Gospel of John has the fullest account of this, of this uh, manifestation. You know these passages well. John 1 chapter 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Elsewhere in in the Gospel of John, we have other uh, statements about the manifestation of the glory. And one that's, I would think, of great interest to the chemist in the crowd comes at the marriage feast of Cana. The Lord turns water into wine and it's recorded, He thus revealed His glory at a party with a chemical transaction. But then this word is added, and his disciples put their trust in him. The story of Lazarus and and his resurrection from the dead, his raising from the dead, has, has Jesus saying that this event was for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And then after Lazarus is raised from the dead, Jesus says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see, you would see the glory of God? What no man could see and live, now people can see and magnify God. John's insistence is, is picked up by the, by the other Gospels and, and it's picked up by, in, in many of the, the epistles of the New Testament. The, the key point is that the one God of Israel who had created the world, who had initiated a covenant with his own people through Abraham, who had then protected his people for the honor of his own name, but now who, who was, was prepared to spread the glory of his name through the world, this glory had entered human history in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ did not simply trail clouds of glory in some kind of romantic sense, but he actually embodied it. So from the first chapter of the first epistle of John, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked at, and our hands have touched. Then, most Remarkably, the New Testament goes on to record that the glory of the Lord manifested in Jesus Christ can be communicated to the followers of Jesus Christ. So we have again in the Gospel of John, in the great high priestly prayer, Jesus looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have given them, the disciples, the glory you gave me, that they may be one. I want those you have given me 
to be with me where I am and to see my glory. And this theme is, is a very important one with the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We, we who with unveiled faces all reflected the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So, Christian, uh, the writers of Scripture were making unusually bold claims for the person and work of Christ. He appears on earth appears to be human, but does the work of God. And the teaching of the Christian church was that this presence of God's glory was God himself in human flesh, in human history. Mysteries, conundrums, paradoxes, apparent contradictions abound in this strand of biblical revelation. How could an apparently ordinary human being born to an apparently ordinary Galilean couple be said to partake of the one true God's glory, which God's glory had been his sole prerogative. If Jesus somehow did embody the divine glory, why was it recorded that he seemed to lack the prerogatives of deity? Jesus hungered, he thirsted, he became weary, he professed that there were things he did not know, and most counterintuitively, the glory of God died. But maybe, uh, maybe, some people speculated in the early history of Christianity, maybe it only seemed that God took on flesh. Maybe it only appeared that the divine glory had become a human being. Or maybe Jesus was actually just like ordinary human beings and only part of his person had the divine glory while the rest of his person remained a human being. Most uh, disconcerting of all, it seemed incredible that someone who knew the Hebrew scriptures could ever imagine ascribing deity to any mere human being. Well, these were puzzles. And what's, what's important to remember at this stage is that this strand of revelation about the glory of God was only one of the great puzzles posed by the appearance of Jesus and the claims made about Jesus. In the early centuries of the Christian church, it was not an easy matter to sort all of this out, but the sorting out task was precisely what was needed to to, to keep together the worship of God in Christ as the one who brought salvation. It was necessary to explain to outsiders, to prospective uh, uh, converts, to incredulous opponents, to suspicious public officials what this all meant. The main creedal statements of the Christian church represented the most important efforts to summarize the kind of biblical revelation that was displayed in the uh, reference to the glory of God in Christ. The figure of Christ was the center of the new religion that spread out from the Middle East into a culture shaped by Roman law, Hellenistic thought. In these circumstances, it became imperative to have some way of talking about who this Christ was and what he had accomplished in the world. And that brings us then to the Christian creeds. The creeds are formulas that were designed for use within the church and they were designed for instruction outside of the church. The the best theories about the formation of the creeds that I know uh, follow the, 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 the Latin phrase that the lex orandi became the lex credendi, 
the law of what was worshipped became the law of what was believed. In other words, the creeds were not primarily academic exercises, but they were a, a, a fruit of the reflection of those who worshipped this Christ who had brought salvation. The Apostles' Creed did not assume its form until uh, quite a bit later, although there, there were, there were pre- uh, precedents and, and many uh, uh, credo-like statements that led to the Apostles' Creed. It was primarily a, a statement for baptismal teaching. People coming into the Christian church uh, were instructed in the Christian faith with the, the, the straightforward, I want to say simple, but of course they, they weren't simple, but the, the simple statements that reflected the great uh, truths of, of Christian salvation. You've got the sheet on there. Let's, let's uh, say together this version of the Apostles' Creed. If you say the Apostles' Creed in your church, it might be slightly different wording. I think I've taken these from the new and great compilation of the Christian creeds that Yaroslav Pelikan did in the last years before his death. So let's say the Apostles' Creed together. I believe that God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The, they're, they're, uh, in the background of all of the creeds lies polemics, but probably less polemics for the Apostles' Creed than for the Nicene Creed and the definition of, of Chalcedon. But the, the creed did make several very important affirmations that, that had the effect of stilling controversy. Among the most important of these affirmations is the fact that the world created by God was a manifestation of the one true God in the same way that the work of salvation accomplished by Jesus and then the institutions, deeds, and expectations of the Holy Spirit were also from God. Many of you will know that there, there were, there were uh, views of the deity in the, in the Semitic and Greek and Roman world. There were views of the, the deity that differentiated sharply between the realm of the divine, the realm of spirit, and the realm of matter. As a guide to the Christian intellectual life, the Apostles' Creed lays down a particularly important foundation. It brings together entirely fruitful, uh, an entirely fruitful way of expressing confidence in God the creator of the material world as being the same God and Father of believers through the saving work of Jesus Christ. This combination sets up the tension with which all of us as academics who are Christian believers work. And this is the tension between Christian scholarship focused on life in this world and personal life convinced of the world to come. The Apostles' Creed doesn't spend a whole lot of time developing uh, theses and arguments and expatiating upon it, but simply states that um, the God and Father who created the world is the God and Father of Jesus Christ. So the Creed offers full cause for taking seriously the fact of the physical world as created by God, but also the drama of redemption. 
that relativizes all earthly realities in eternal perspective. Things are more complicated with the uh, Nicene Creed, uh, but I think the simple story is, is to say that the challenge to which the Nicene Creed was subjected was the challenge of sophisticated Greek learning. It was the challenge to meet the, the highest standards of rationality in the third and fourth century world with a Christian statement responding to the challenge but remaining rooted in what had actually happened as described by the, the, the New Testament. Some of the uh, formulas that, that were worked up to ex- explain how God could be in Christ reconciling the world to himself uh, rested strangely with Christian communities that worshipped, that used hymns like found in the second chapter of Philippians to praise Christ. These alternatives included the notion that there may have been three successive manifestations of the same God. So first we have the creator God. Then that God is transformed into the Jesus. And then that God is transformed into the spirit who lives in the world. Um, There were other uh, notions and, and more disturbing notions that Jesus was a creature who embodied much of the divinity, but was still distinct in his essence from the maker of heaven and earth. And the Christian official who proposed this most convincingly was a priest by the name of Arius, who brought this teaching into the learned world of North Africa and the Mediterranean world, the late 3rd and early 4th century. Arius was very pleased to, to say that Jesus was, was much more than a simple human being. But he, he, he was a, uh, a monotheist who had studied the Greek way of approaching things and was confident that the perfect and unchanging source of all change could never appear fully in a human being. Because to be perfect was to be unchanging. And we know that Jesus changed much throughout his life. Arius' teacher won some followers and caused much consternation. Um, Politics enters the story at this point because it was the conversion of Constantine in the early years of the 4th century that enabled 250 bishops of the, of the Christian church to gather to talk about uh, how they should formulate the Christian faith. They met at, at three, in 325 in the bustling, uh, we would say today, Turkish city of Nicaea. And, and they formulated what would be a, a, a lifeline, a baseline for Christian teaching that s- served the church very well. Jesus Christ, they said, was true God from true God. Jesus Christ could be spoken of as begotten by the Father, but not made by the Father. In other words, there, there was a distinction between the Father and the Son, but not of a maker and that which was made. Jesus Christ was of one substance, consubstantial, homoousios, with the, the Father. And th- this phrase caused a whole lot of problems because the word, Greek word homoousios, of the same substance, was not a New Testament word. And how could you introduce into a foundational statement of Christian faith a word, a phrase, a way of thinking that was not found in the New Testament itself. But the key, the payoff was the affirmation that Christ became human for us and for our salvation. Struggle was far from over. Some of you who know this history know that there was 
more than a hundred years of, of in, sharp internal struggle in the church. And stepping back and looking at it as a historian, it seems to me that the, the struggle was very much what academics in the modern world face. The, the struggle was uh, finding a way of expressing the Christian faith that would be faithful to the biblical revelation and productive for life in the world in which people lived. Finally, in 381, there was another council, this one at Constantinople, called by another emperor, this one Theodosius. The bishops met once again and issued an expansion, a, a refinement of the, what had been done at Nicaea. And this is the creed from 381 AD that, that we know of as the Nicene Creed. It's really the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, but nobody wants to uh, take that burden upon themselves when they announce it for saying in church. Well, let's read the, the Nicene Creed together, and, and uh, I'll then make just a few comments about how it uh, provides uh, a foundational place for looking at the world in, in all of its diversity. So, we believe in one God, the Father all-powerful, maker of heaven and of earth, and of all things, both seen and unseen, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all the ages, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through whom all things came to be, for us humans and for our salvation, he came down from the heavens and became incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, became human and was crucified on our behalf under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and rose up on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he went up into the heavens and is seated at the Father's right hand. He is coming again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. And in the Spirit, the Holy, the Lordly, and life-giving One, proceeding forth from the Father, co-worshipped and co-glorified with Father and Son, the One who spoke through the prophets, in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, we confess one baptism for the forgiving of sins. We look forward to a resurrection of the dead and a life of the to come. Amen. The specific contribution that the Nicene Creed makes to Christian learning is to affirm that God revealed himself most fully in the materiality of the world and through the events of the world. Jesus was not just God-like, but true God from true God. In other words, when the New Testament writers spoke about the glory of God in Jesus Christ, it was not a metaphor, it was not hyperbole. It was a statement of fact. Jesus did not seem just to have a life on earth, but for the sake of his people and their salvation, he truly entered into human history. The narrative that's summarized by the creed shows God making the fullest revelation of himself in the created world, through events that occurred in the world. And, and in the world and through the world is are revealed the, the pathway of salvation. By extension, the narrative also implies something very positive about the created world itself and the human events, structures, and institutions of the world. If the world and its configuration constituted the venue 
that God chose to reveal himself in Christ and accomplish his great work of salvation, then that world and the cultures of the world have been lent an extraordinary dignity, not in and of themselves, but as they have been used in this way, as the vehicle, as the venue, as the theater of divine revelation and the message of salvation. Of course, being human beings and being, those of you who have ever gone to a church business meeting will understand this, being church folks, one solid statement didn't solve the issues. Intellectually, questions remained. If Jesus was fully divine, how could he also be fully human? If Jesus was somehow both human and divine, how was it possible to speak about a, a common personality without making him out to be some kind of freak of human nature, some kind of compromise of, of, of deity. So there's another co complicated and, and tangled period of controversy. And th th what happened in this next period was even more in some ways distressing than what had happened during the time of the writing of the nicene Constantinopolitan Creed because there's a lot of real heavy church politics, a lot of mutual ex excommunications, some uh, struggles that bordered on warfare. But uh, Eastern and Western authorities um, contributed to what was then another meeting at Chalcedon, also in the uh, Asian Minor, Turkish Peninsula, in 451, in which the definition that you have on your sheet was hammered out. And it was a definition trying to, trying to define in, in very tumultuous times, under great pressure, how you could formulate a way of expressing the Christian faith that, that was true to what was recorded in Scripture, which was true to the way in which people worshipped God as creator and savior, and yet expressed in some kind of form, some kind of brief teaching device, these great uh, mysteries. The Chalcedonian definition is actually different from the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed because it, rather than specifying Christian teaching, it builds a sort of boundary around what uh, it, faithful Christian teaching might be. Let's read it, it, it together. So, following the saintly fathers, we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity. The same truly God and truly man of a rational soul and a body. Consubstantial with the Father, as regards his divinity, and the same consubstantial with us as regards his humanity, like us in all respects except for sin, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity, and in the last days the same for us and for our salvation from Mary, the virgin, God-bearer, as regards his humanity, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the nations taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons but is one in the same only begotten Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, 
Just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and as the creeds of the fathers handed down to us. The important thing about the Chalcedonian definition was that it remained fixated upon the experience of what the church had uh, 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 taken in about the work of Christ, and it was able to build this boundary about what was said to be appropriate ways of speaking of this work in, in Christ. I think that the Chalcedonian definition makes um, for an almost indispensable place to stand for those who are engaged in studying uh, aspects of the created world or the, or, the, or the human world, aesthetics, the way in which uh, politics, sociology, societies function, by its um, emphasis upon the consubstantiality of the divine and the human. The strong affirmation of the Chalcedonian Creed is at the heart of the most basic reality that God can communicate to humankind, at the heart of the salvation won by the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ, at the heart of this great message of salvation is divine and human in one person without confusion. Now, why this is so important for um, those who Christian believers who approach the life in the world hinges upon this duality. So, to stress too much the divine reality in our human lives is to approach what might be called a super-spiritual Gnostic literalism. In other words, Gnosticism was the great ancient heresy that only certain adepts could see the true nature of things as spiritual. Remember the the great uh, autobiography or statement by Augustine. In his, his, he always talks about raising his mind to that which is spiritual, raising his mind to the eternal verities. And this, this was a deeply ingrained um, tendency in, in the ancient world, but could very easily slip over into an attitude toward the material realm as insignificant, or as only evil, or as only a weight, only a burden. On the other side, to stress too much the human shape, the material side of divine revelation within the world would be to approach what we know of as a a water-thin modernism. The imminence of God by itself leads to pantheism, pantheism, or just kind of moral uplift. God is within each one of us. It's our duty to magnify that sense of God within. By contrast... The Chalcedonian definition says, no, true reality is not raising ourselves to the spirit. True reality is not just developing what's in human nature. True reality lies in the story of one who is fully divine and fully human in one integrated personality. If this foundational statement of Christian faith is preserved as the place from which Christian exploration of the world begins, we we are in a good position to proceed with full confidence in the study of whatever we study, full confidence in the God who created the world of what we studied and offers us salvation in Jesus Christ, and full confidence that the world immersed in the materiality 
and the world fixated in God can be joined together without confusion, without change, in one person. We'll uh, explore just a little bit in, in talks to come how significant thinkers in the history of the church have in effect tried to come up with different ways of expressing this uh, this uh, consubstantiality of the divine and human. I mentioned in the talk yesterday the, the well-established uh, metaphor that goes back into the Middle Ages and survives way up into the present of, of God writing two books, a book of nature and the book of Scripture. Uh, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century developed very sophisticated theories of nature and grace to show how these could not just exist together, but overlap uh, together. During the Middle Ages and then rescued by uh, certain reformers in the 16th century was the notion of concursus, that things can, uh, parallel things can exist, as it were, in the same place in the same time, but be studied in, in different ways. Martin Luther was never a systematic thinker, but a brilliant uh, reflector upon the nature of Scripture, talked about simultaneity, by which he meant God in Christ being simultaneously human, simultaneously divine, ourselves being simultaneously people of this world and people of eternity. The great uh, gift of the Christian creeds is to provide uh, theological places from which to begin the complicated and detailed work of Christian learning. Let me close this 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 effort to try to begin a platform. We'll try to go on after the break to to, to more uh, details about uh, what focus upon Christ can do for encouraging uh, different elements in Christian learning. And then this afternoon, I'm going to really try to get practical, which will be. That's the last lecture, so I can, if I'm going to be ridden out of the, on a rail, we can do it after this other stuff. So you study the Bible, you study the creed, you're, you're okay. You focus upon different aspects of Christ's work, you're okay. Then you try to tell people what they should do in their fields, and you run into real trouble. So that's the, the last lecture. Evangelical Christians, particularly in the United States, particularly given the history of, that merged together strong Christian belief and strong acceptance of democracy, Republican politics, smaller Republican politics and things. We uh, Evangelical Christians in this country particularly have a tradition of saying no creed but the Bible. No creed but the Bible. And the motivation behind that statement is certainly can be a good motivation. Uh, Christian people have to um, focus upon what the Scriptures tell and have that as the consistent baseline and the consistent fountain from which all else is, is nurtured. But if no creed but the Bible means I, I myself personally must start from the words of Scripture and build up an entire theology that handles the cosmos, that handles the, the creative works of God, that handles how those creative works of God are related to the saving works of God. If I myself with no creed but the Bible, have to do all of this. Life is way too short to be a good engineer, to be a good historian, to be a good literary scholar, to be a good sociologist. I think it's entirely appropriate for Protestant Bible believers to use the creeds, not as infallible in the same sense that Scripture is infallible, but as providing an occasion already for, for faithful brothers and sisters in the Lord who've struggled to work for these, struggled for centuries 
with much bloodshed, with much alienation, with much strife, to put down a, a, a distillation of what the scriptural revelation means. Uh, as the Christian faith broadens out to the world, it's not clear always that people without a Roman and Greek and Semitic background are going to resonate the same way to these statements. But at least in the Western world, it seems to me that if we, we begin with these uh, broad and yet straightforward efforts to summarize Christian teaching, we have a wonderful place to begin lives as Christian intellectuals. Let me stop there. We have time for some 